This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. With changing borders, Brexit and Trump, it's an interesting time for global geopolitics. Historically, and even more so in today's current climate, political cartoons are shared via newspapers and social media as a commentary on global power relations and nationhood. In today's podcast, we're joined by Dr Daniel Hammett from the Department of Geography at the University of Sheffield. We'll be discussing what we can learn from such cartoons, the role of humour in political geography, and his research into citizenship and geopolitics in southern Africa. So Dan, can you tell me how you developed an interest in political geography and where has this research taken you? So my interest came from two things. First was at primary school, being good at geography, being good at maps, being able to read maps, being able to draw things and make sense of geography. So that is where one part of it came from. The other bit was I grew up in a household where we listened to Radio 4 News in the morning and my parents were aware of what was going on in the world in general. So I was aware at that time when I was growing up, and this shows my age, um, of apartheid in South Africa, of scandals around Nestle selling formula milk to mothers in Africa who then couldn't breastfeed their own children for various reasons, and all the scandals that, that came from that. Shell's role in the um, oil fields in Nigeria and the, the human rights abuses that went with that. So I grew up with an awareness of politics and a love of geography. And the two kind of came together, a bit in a level, mainly at university where I realised that there was a whole raft of stuff that I could find interesting about the geography of politics and the politics that went with ideas of colonialism and the history of geography as a discipline. So that's the background. Where has it taken me? It's from here to Sheffield. It's also taken me to do fieldwork in South Africa, in Rwanda, in Uganda, in Singapore. So it's allowed me to travel and it's brought me to a set of interests that focus on politics and specifically around who people are and why they engage in politics in certain ways. So ideas of citizenship and ideas of civil society and really understanding how power at very different levels and different forms allows or prevents groups, especially young people, from being involved in politics and and having a say in the future. So you used to term there civil society. I'm wondering if you could define or kind of explain what geographers mean when they talk about civil society. Of course. So civil society is a concept that, if you're in the deep, boring history, is from Cicero and the the Greek philosophers and politicians way back when. Um, It really was centred around the idea of citizens who were members of a city community then being able to participate in decision-making processes. And civil society emerged as the public sphere or the public space, the environment in which people could interact, talk about politics, dissent and argue, and push ideas and debates forward. And what that's kind of morphed into or emerged into today is an idea that civil society sits separate from the state and the government and institutions of government, separate from the market, so businesses, transnational corporations and so on, and separate from your family and your friends. So it sits in the middle of those three areas. And it overlaps and there's, there's things that bring it together. 
But it remains this idea of a set of organisations at very different scales. So it could be from very local collectives that form around a specific issue. So in Sheffield at the minute, there's a lot of civil society engagement around the council and the council's contract with a big uh, private company to fell lots of trees in Sheffield, very old trees, some of which were planted um, just after the First World War in memory of Sheffield's men who died in conflict. Um, and they wanted to fell these trees to allow them to do road maintenance and things. And it's called a lot of controversy. So lots of people have come together and formed organisations to campaign and, and protest against that. So you've got that very local level thing. All the way then through to your big non-governmental organisation, so think of Oxfam or Médecins Sans Frontières or Transparency International and so on. So it's really a sector in which people try from the left of the political spectrum and the right of the political spectrum and everywhere in between to come together and talk about and promote different debates and different ideas and try and promote social change. Now that might be progressive for good or it might be regressive and something very negative. So as you've mentioned your research has looked at the location of South Africa. How have these concepts and ideas played out there and what have you been particularly interested in? So in terms of civil society there's a very interesting part to this which is that civil society, the idea of civil society is drawn from the Western Europe and North American experience. So it doesn't always fit very well to African or Asian contexts where there are very powerful forms of social relations that differ from civil society. So it's not always the most appropriate term or concept to try and impose somewhere. And that's been a big challenge in the international development sector more broadly as to what role civil society should play. And there's a lot of scholars who argue that it's an inappropriate term. But we put that to one side. So in South Africa, civil society has played a huge role. Um, if you look at resistance to colonialism, both within the white minority population and more specifically within the, the African majority, black African majority population and then the other so-called coloured and, and Indian populations. Civil society playing a very important role in resisting colonialism, resisting apartheid, resisting segregation. On the right wing in terms of Afrikaners, perhaps more likely promoting and supporting um, apartheid through the Bond and other organisations. So historically it's played a very complex role in shaping and forming social relations and shaping and forming the political system that existed through colonialism and apartheid. In the 1980s, civil society became a real key battleground for resisting apartheid and segregation by race within, within South Africa. And you saw lots of organisations um, engaging in lobbying and um, trying to persuade non South African governments and organisations to boycott the country and to oppose, impose sanctions and so on, but also internally to try and raise awareness and engage in civil disobedience campaigns, so past burning and breaking various laws and so on, to try and really make the system infeasible and ungovernable. The, those organisations were a key part of the shift from apartheid and the fall of, of the National Party. In the post-apartheid period, civil society has played or enjoyed a very mixed environment. So initially civil society was championed as supporting the end of apartheid. Then it became a critical voice that the African National Congress government wasn't so keen on and sought to marginalise and try and increase surveillance of and close down spaces for civil society to operate unless it was supporting the government and the, the realisation of government policies around service delivery and so on. So it's, it's a very complicated situation, but really interesting and fascinating as to how 
civil society relates to a government that wanted to operate in one way when the organisations and citizens may want it to operate in a different way. So that's led to a lot of tension and a bit of conflict as to questions around the demolition of informal housing, the relocation of communities. Uh, really classic example, um, it would be the Treatment Action Campaign. So this is an organisation set up um, around the issue of HIV and AIDS in South Africa. And the government's denial of there being a problem and refusal to provide treatment and, and, and kind of challenges that went with that. The Treatment Action Campaign engaged in lobbying and court cases against the government to force them to deliver antiretroviral medication and other services to people living with, with HIV. And also try and encourage the destigmatization of the disease. Um, so working in communities, a lot of education programs and outreach programs and treatment literacy campaigns to promote healthy living and to try and reduce the stigma and violence towards people living with HIV. So they engaged in everything from kind of civil disobedience campaigns. So the leader, Zakim Ahmad, was arrested for importing illegally um, generic antiretroviral drugs that were produced in India. And he was doing that as a means to say, look, South African government, you can afford this. this is, if you go away from the big Western pharmaceutical companies, you can afford to buy these drugs and treat your people, and you have a legal obligation to do it. So there was the kind of civil disobedience going on and marches and protests alongside education campaigns in communities, alongside taking the government to court around a whole series of issues to do with the provision of drugs and, and other issues. So civil society plays a very complicated role. It might be oppositional to the government and antagonistic and forces them to try and change policy and realise human rights and all those things. Elsewhere, civil society plays a role in, in supporting the government in terms of implementing service delivery projects, in terms of providing access to water or healthcare or land rights and so on. So it, it varies and there's no simple answer, but that messiness is what's so fascinating about how civil society can operate and then doesn't or does depending on the political context that's going on and where they get money from and who they're allowed to talk to and the spaces they can use. So yes, it, it plays with issues of governance on a range of levels. So you've, you've got this question of development trying to promote participation and governance, or participation in governance amongst communities. But then if that becomes oppositional or antagonistic to what the government wants, then closing it down or marginalising, or just plain ignoring it and pretending it's not there. So it, it plays across a number of levels. Um, one of the big sectors, not only in South Africa, but more broadly, is within international development of development funding from DFID and the World Bank and others being increasingly directed not to governments to, pro to provide development programmes, but to civil society organisations who they think are more effective at providing access to resources and more in tune with marginalised communities and so on. But one of the big parts of that agenda is to get funding for civil society organisations who try and hold governments accountable. They're expected to then be the ones who monitor government spending, government budgets, who are tasked with promoting an ideal of good governance linked with democracy and so on. So it's about accountability and transparency that's promoted by civil society organisations holding governments to account for good, go good governance. You've also, in your research, looked at, I guess, how some of these issues and complex, like, as you said, messiness mm -hmm. plays out, looked at how maybe cartoonists um, have portrayed some of these issues. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've engaged with cartoons and why geographers more generally should 
you know, be critically engaging with cartoons as a medium. So this kind of takes us into a realm of geopolitics, which is very clearly around the geography of politics. And you can look at the formal sector in terms of international um, relations and treaties and so on, through to more popular geopolitics, which looks at representations of power and place and people, and our understandings of the other, be that China, Ethiopia, um, Iran and so on and how we come to understand and then represent and think about or make assumptions and stereotype people and places. So there's a role in here in terms of political cartoonists um, specifically. Um, it's linked to do with how both messages are promoted, so we could think back to the colonial period and the use of cartoons in Western Europe specifically to talk about the dangers posed by the expansion of Russia and Russian expansionism. Um, we could look at political cartoons in... South Africa in the 1970s and 1980s that focused on the white minority government's argument there was a threat of Svartkovar, the black menace, the black danger from other African countries, or the red danger of, of communism. So we're really promoting political agendas and political ideas. And political cartoons are really powerful and important because they're what we refer to as being everyday ephemera. They're mundane things you look at, you read, you laugh at. And you don't realise the message they're giving you all the time. But build that up over time, and it starts to give you a message, an idea, and a representation. And one of the key things that political cartoonists do is often challenge dominant narratives, make arguments against um, key government policies or statements, or make claims to the, the need to realise human rights, or social rights, or environmental damage, and so on. So in, in South Africa, one of the key cartoonists that many people look at is Zabira. In the post-apartheid period, he's emerged as a really critical cartoonist of certain government decisions and scandals in relation to the closing down of press freedoms in terms of the arms trade scandal, or the arms scandal, um, a good few years ago. Um, he raises all sorts of questions about the provision of education funding, of the abuse and manipulation of power by senior figures. You can look at um, various other cartoonists across Africa and Asia and Latin America who speak truth to power, to use a very classic term. But equally, you could look um, in, the U in the US at people like Doonesbury who write comic strips rather than cartoons, again, questioning, critiquing power, politics, and the processes that go on. In England or in the UK, you could look at someone like Steve Bell, who draws cartoons in The Guardian, who, through his If comic strip and his editorial cartoons, raises lots of questions around government policy and reasons for intervention in the Iraq War or the Falklands War going back to the 1980s, but also even contemporary issues around Brexit, around the role of NATO, around the role of the UN, um, and Donald Trump, and all these things. And the reason they're important is that they might make us laugh, they might also invoke what we call unlaughter, which is a moment where you look at something and go, ooh, that's a little bit ouch. And you realise that that moment of not laughing is telling you something very important. So what is it in that moment that makes it uncomfortable? So the very controversial cartoon in South Africa um, by Zapiro depicted a, the, 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 the figure of Lady Justice being um, attacked by senior South African politicians and their, and their colleagues. And it was that moment where it wasn't funny. It was a moment where you went, oh, that made you think, okay, what's he telling us here? He's telling us something about the institution of democracy, that something that should be independent and powerful, is being manipulated and used for political means by political elites. It's that moment where you don't laugh, where you think there's something important going on.
Equally, laughter itself can be used to take somebody's power away. So, some examples going back over recent years. The depiction of George W. Bush, so a recent US president, as a, as a chimp, as a monkey, um, using a banana as a lightsaber. So it's a play on George Bush's stature and figure and the way he talked and his general demeanour. And by representing him as a monkey, the effort was to take away his power and say he's not a superior person, he's not this big figure. He is a bit silly, he's a bit daft, he's not that clever. And we should just ignore a lot of what he's saying. It's similarly with depictions of Boris Johnson, um, with his big floppy white hair and talking gobbledygook and throwing in random words. Again, it's about saying... Yeah, this person has power, but there's also questions we need to ask back to that power. So the complex term is deterritorialization, which basically means you're, you're removing them from the centre of a conversation and saying, actually, we need to be able to say, speak truth to power. We need to be able to ask why you're saying this and what power you hold. And therefore, the ideas or, again, technical term, discourses that go with that. So in other words, how we come to understand a thing, a place, an event, and so on. So why geographers should pay attention to this is it allows us insights into everyday life. It allows us insights into the dynamics of power that frame society, that frame our understanding of people, our understanding of places, our understandings of what is good and what is bad, what is good governance and what's corrupt, and also allows us or helps us to open up our eyes to things that aren't fair, things that aren't good, but things that often go unspoken about or things that we can't speak about. So, a very quick example, in the mid-2000s in Zimbabwe, there's a very tight control over the press and the media and the election, so there's very little space for the opposition political parties to speak truth to power against Robert Mugabe and the ZANU-PF political party. So there was very little space to hold debate and dissent and discussion without fear of attacks, physical and political, from ZANU-PF and their supporters. So various things got produced, a little informal handbook called A Guide to the Dangerous Snakes of Zimbabwe, which depicted key political leaders and political institutions as forms of snakes and made fun of them, tried to take away their power by pointing out their flaws, be it they were corrupt or they'd overseen various um, scandals. But also a packet then of playing cards that was produced mainly for people outside of Zimbabwe. Which again, each playing card had a cartoon or an image on it which made fun of or highlighted issues within the country to do with violence, to do with corruption, to do with a lack of political accountability. And they were all designed to circulate outside of what the government could see and what the government could control were designed to help people think critically or question the political system they were under. So do you have any advice or tips for geography students um, who might want to use cartoons in their own research? It's harder than you think, I would be my starting point. It's very easy to take a cartoon and say, this is what it's saying, in a way, or to make an assumption about it. So don't fall into that trap. Yes, political cartoons are phenomenally powerful and they should be used, and I would encourage you to use them where appropriate. But don't throw them in just as a simple thing. They are complicated. So you need to think about a couple of things. Firstly, what is the message that that cartoonist is trying to put across? What's their agenda? What do they want you to think about? Secondly, then, what's the context that that cartoon is produced in? And what are the complexities of that? So depicting 
certain allegoric, what we refer to as allegorical figures, people like Lady Justice, the figure of Lady Justice. So these are the figures that we recognise as representing institutions or representing certain ways of thinking or ways of being can mean different things in different contexts. So you need to be aware that there might be certain subtleties that go behind certain of the, the characters or items depicted in the cartoons. It's understanding that. One of the key things is a weakness that we often have is to look at a cartoon in isolation and not to think about the story it's telling over a longer period of time. So you could look at any of the car a political cartoon about Brexit, a specific aspect of Brexit, but unless you look at it in terms of what's gone before it and maybe what's coming after it, you can't tell a full story. So it's being able to tease and make those link tease out and then make those links together for the different aspects. It's what we refer to as thinking critically, not just going, this cartoon shows a person um, driving a bendy bus that doesn't work in the city. There's a longer story around the economic background to the political background to why those buses were brought into London and what the complications were of them, or of who's claiming credit for them and so on. And I think also select, be selective with which cartoons you're using. Not all cartoons have a message. Some cartoons are really just for fun. So pick out the good cartoonists, pick out the editorial cartoonists from newspapers like The Guardian or The Times and see and try and come to understand what messages they're giving you. You could also look at comic books and look at the, me the messages that go with the narration of, through say Captain America, what does it mean, what's the representation of Captain America over a series of comic books or now in films? What message does that give you about the ideal view of what an American citizen is like, or what the idea of America is? And I'll give you a hint, it's about defensiveness, it's about being defensive and masculine and a certain way of enforcing order but not adhering always to the state. But another way you could do it for a project would be to think about what is the message being given by a cartoonist, so there's the intent of the message from an elite person, but what do people think of it, what's the reception, what's the understanding of that message? And those two things can differ tremendously. For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools for the latest updates. Thanks for listening.